This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. Y'all ever do that thing where you don't wear a jacket for a long time, like, you know, because winter's over, and you don't wear it, and then all of a sudden, you pull it out of the closet and put it on, and you put your hands in your pockets, and then you find, like, a fresh $20 bill? Does that ever happen to you? Not enough. I know. Not enough, the pastor says. <laughs> Amen to that. Uh, I feel like that happened to me an inappropriate number of times when I was a kid. Like, I didn't have access to $20 bills. My parents aren't here uh, today because my my mom had knee surgery and she's at home recovering. But I've been meaning to ask them if they used to plant 20s in my winter coats because it, it didn't make any sense the number of times that happened to me. But when it happens, it's like, it's wonderful because you're just putting on your jacket. And then you're like, my hands are cold. And you put your hands in your pocket and you're like, what is this? And you're expecting a gum wrapper, but instead it's 20 bucks. That's like, that's a good day right there. Um, I've talked to some of you about that before. It's just like, anyway, it's just good. It's an unexpected blessing. Um, And I think the book of Jude is like that. So we're going to be in the book of Jude today and for the next, uh, or the following three weeks. Um, And I I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and turn there. Um, But the book of Jude is kind of hard to find because it's stuck in between Peter's letters and the book of Revelation. It's only 25 verses long, so it probably only takes up a single page in your Bible. But like that that surprise $20 that comes out of your jacket pocket, it's full of blessing. Uh, It's a gift to us. And there are some hard things in Jude. There are some weird things in Jude, and we'll get to those in the coming weeks. But today, this morning, we get to start with the wonderful truths that are found in the first couple verses of Jude. So I'm going to read uh, with you Jude, just verses 1 and 2, and we're going to look at these two today. So it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Uh, this is God's word, and it's good for us. Um, I say that to the students on Wednesday nights all the time, which is why I grinned when I said that just then. It's true, uh, but that was just habit. When I read scripture out loud, I, I say that. Uh, the main point that I want us to take away from this passage today is that believers in Christ belong to God forever, and he wants us to continually experience that blessing. So before we get into these two verses, I want to talk a little bit about who Jude is, um, because since his letter is easy to miss, it's also easy to miss who he is as a person. And I think there are some really cool things for us here. Um, There are several Judes mentioned in the New Testament. Sometimes uh, the name Judas is shortened to Jude, Uh, but Jude is mentioned as being one of Jesus' brothers in Matthew 13, 55. There's several brothers of Jesus that are mentioned by name, and Jude is one of them. And then the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, um, he refers to the Lord's brothers, implying at least that Jesus' half-brothers were familiar to the early church. Uh, and then there's another brother of Jesus, who is James. The book of James, the letter of James, uh, was written by another half-brother of Jesus. 
And he was more well-known in the church. He became a leader in the Jerusalem church. And so when Jude introduces himself as the brother of James, and he doesn't give any other qualifier for who James is, we can assume that that James is the same James who was a leader in the early church who also was a half-brother of Jesus. So if Jude is a half-brother of James who was a half-brother of Jesus, that means Jude is also half-brother of Jesus. Uh, which you would think that if you were writing a letter and you grew up and lived with Jesus in the same home and shared parents, then you think you would be like, this is the letter of Jude, the brother of Jesus. Like, like you would use that. I would use that. I'd use that all the time. I'd make a t-shirt. Like, I'd name tag something. But that would be, I would share that information with people. Um, and so it seems a little bit weird. Why didn't Jude call himself, or why did he point that out about himself? And our scholar friends, uh, you know, those who write commentaries and things, they help us understand that. Because in the early church, there were people who wanted to give Jesus' half-brothers, like, special authority or status. Because... After all, they were siblings with Jesus. But his brothers seemed to be rejecting that out of, a, out of a, a place of humility, but then also not wanting to elevate themselves as if they would be against the apostles, the, the 12 who followed Jesus, who learned from Jesus directly, and then carried on his mission as leaders of the church. So James, when he opens up his letter, he doesn't call himself a brother of Jesus either. He just calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. And Jude does the same thing, where he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Um, we can remember that during, maybe you remember, if you've read through the Gospels, during Jesus' ministry, his brothers did not believe him. They didn't believe the things he was saying. In Mark chapter 3, his family, Jesus is teaching, and tons of people are packing the house where he's teaching, and they're trying to get in to listen, and his family come, and they're like, oh, Jesus, come on. Like they, it literally says that they said he was out of his mind. This dude's crazy. Get, get, get over here, Jesus. Um, and then the Gospel of John in chapter 7 says there also, it says that his brothers did not believe him. And it's not until after his resurrection that we see his brothers showing up changed. In Acts 1.14, it says that uh, there are believers gathered in the upper room singing praises to God and worshiping him. Uh, and it says that Mary, his mother, and his brothers were there with them in the room. So something, something happened. And I think this is important for us to point out. I think there are two things we can take away from this. The first is that this is testament to the, the, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Because his brothers, his family, did not, they did not believe that he was who he said he was during his earthly ministry. They opposed him. They tried to stop him from teaching. But then something happens that they go from opposing Jesus to now preaching salvation in Jesus' name, proclaiming that publicly and putting their own lives in danger at calling Jesus the Messiah. Something changed there, and the resurrection is that something. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, it's like at that point they were like, oh, snap, he's not crazy, he's God. And so his, his, his brother's turning around on that is testament to the resurrection. Um, and then the second reason I think that matters is because it gives us hope for those who don't believe. Some of you know people who, who don't believe. Maybe you grew up with them in the same home and they don't believe. They've heard it over and over and over and over again and you've shared it with them and you've prayed for them and they don't believe. And I want to encourage you that Jesus' brothers came around. Do not give up on those people. They, they can be changed. They, they, can, they can be saved. The, the people who adamantly reject Jesus, there is hope for them. And there's also hope for those who just kind of snuggle up next to Jesus, 
because we can we're comfortable in churches where we sing songs and we're we enjoy the fellowship with one another, but that the concept of Jesus being Lord hasn't quite sank in yet. We are kind of, we want the blessings from him, but we don't want to fully submit to him. And there's hope for those people as well. Jesus is not make-believe. He's not a genie. He's not a good luck charm for us to have rub off on us. He's not just a religious leader. He is the risen son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Members of, of our church and faithful churches all over the world gather to proclaim this truth to one another. We go through our weeks trying to faithfully follow him and then invite others to believe this truth. Jesus' brothers came around, so keep sharing, keep inviting, keep being an example, and we'll see people go from death to life through faith in the resurrected Jesus. And when this happens, you'll get a new identity. So I want to talk from these verses about our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ. If we look at verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Um, we, we want to understand who we are because our identity, understanding who we are at our core, affects everything else in our lives. We can't live rightly if we don't know who we are. Adam and Eve forgot who they are, who they were. They were image bearers of God, meant to live with him, meant to love him, meant to represent him on the earth, and they forgot that, and the result of their forgetfulness is still plaguing us today. And then we follow in their same misguided footsteps over and over again. So at the, at the end of our time, again, I hope that you remember or learn for the first time that believers in Christ belong to God forever, and he wants us to continually experience that blessing. So the first thing about our identity, who we are, we're going to talk about is that we are bought. We're bought. Like Jude, we are servants. The word in Greek is, is sometimes translated bondservant or slave, and depending on the translation that you're using. We should, we should be thinking about someone who belongs to another and is fully submissive to them. And it's hard for us sometimes because we live in America, and when we think of slavery, we think of the chattel slavery that existed in our country, which we should reject. That was an, an atrocious blight on American history, on, on world history. That is not, when we're talking about slavery to Jesus, we are not talking about that. So we've got to kind of set that aside and think about what it means to just belong to someone. When, when Paul writes again to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, he says, You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. You no longer belong to yourself. So the blood of Jesus has purchased us out of slavery to sin, and then we're now slaves to Jesus, which maybe is confusing, because I just said we're no longer slaves, but we also are slaves. Like, which one is that? And the answer is both. <laughs> yes, we were slaves, and we are slaves. We were slaves to sin. Now we're slaves to Jesus. There, that may seem weird, and we may want to reject that, but everyone is enslaved to something. If not to God, then to self. Our, our desires and our cravings, uh, this, this will go through our lives trying to prove ourselves as capable and as good and as right. And that's a different kind of enslavement. It maybe doesn't feel like that to us, but it is. It's a, it's a trap. No one is truly free. But the enemy has been lying to us from the beginning, trying to convince us that God that, that slavery to God or belonging to God is a bad thing, that he doesn't really love us, that he doesn't really want what's best for us. 
But if we take a closer look at our own lives, we can tell, if we're honest, that chasing our every desire is a pretty awful thing. It is an awful way to live. It's bad for our relationships with others. It's also bad for our mental health. We're angry, lonely, sad, anxious people. And Jesus rescues us out of slavery to that self, out of slavery to sin and death, to make us slaves and servants of him. And then we join a long line of people who identify the same way. If you read the scriptures, we'll see Moses be referred to as a servant of God or a slave of God. We see David, King David, being referred to that way. The apostles refer to them that way. Jude and James refer to themselves that way. What, and what this practically means is that we no longer think only about ourselves. And I want to try to give some examples, and hopefully these connect. Uh, so before I got married, I really didn't have to think about other people very much, except when I was interacting with them. And then I got married, and all of a sudden, I came face-to-face with my selfishness in a new way. And I think laundry was probably the most clear way I came face-to-face with my selfishness. I love my mama. And my mama did all my laundry when I was growing up. When I was in college, I would save my laundry for weeks at a time, and I brought it home in a literal peanut sack over my shoulder, a heap of laundry. I'd bring it home, and she would take it and just wash all of it and fold it and stack it back in that sack, and I would carry it back to school with me. I'm embarrassed to admit that. My mom was blessing me, and it was good, but when I got married, Jenna was like, you're going to have to change that now. Like, I ain't your mama. And she, she was right. But it took me too long to learn that. That was, that was part of early fights in our marriage, and those fights continued, where she's like, I was working full-time, she was in school full-time, but, like, dishes had to be washed, meals had to be prepared, laundry had to be washed, like, stuff had to get done, and it wasn't all going to fall on her. And so I was like, all right, I have, to, I have to step that up. And so then I thought, after a few years of that, I thought, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm getting better at thinking about others and not just myself. And then we had kids. And that's like a whole different level. I think a couple weeks ago, maybe the pastor said somebody told him when, when Susan was pregnant that his life was about to change and he'll, he'll, never, get to make it, he'll never get to do what he wants to do again. Like you're, and that's sometimes what it feels like as a parent because you're thinking constantly about your children. And if I'm not thinking about my kids, I'm thinking about my wife because I'm like, dang it, if I don't, if I don't do this for the kids, then Jenna has to do this for the kids. And then we're going to get into a fight and we're going to be like Sada and one another while we're trying to do bedtime routine or whatever it is. Like, it's a whole different level of like thinking about others rather than yourself. I don't belong to just myself. I belong also to my wife and to my children. And so hopefully those relationships help us understand. Like marriage and parenting are part of God's design for life. And I want to be clear that I am not saying that single people are not being faithful to God. I'm not saying you have to get married and have to have children in order to to fully participate in God's design for life. Uh, Jesus himself was not married and had no children, and he was the most full and complete human being who ever lived. So uh, I I just want to make that side note and make that clear. Hopefully the, the marriage and parenting relationships help us understand what we mean when we say we belong to God. Now we're filtering all of our life decisions through our relationship to him. And rather than reject his authority, we can be empowered by his, his authority. The God of the universe has made me his own and given me authority through his son to participate in the death-defying work of reconciling people to God. 
What, what, what else could be better to give my time and attention to than that? If we think that way, then our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools, our jobs, our grocery stores, our restaurants, the parks, sporting events, our vehicles become battleground where we're waging war against the same ancient serpent that deceived our great-great-great-grandparents into believing that God didn't love them or want what's best for them. We get to shine light into the darkness of the world as ambassadors for Jesus. We go where he leads, even when that makes us uncomfortable, because we've been bought and we do not belong to ourselves. We are servants of Jesus. And just in case you get tempted, as I am sometimes, to get a big head thinking that, oh, I've chosen to follow Jesus, and now I am a better person than these people who've rejected him. I want to point out that when Jude is, is talking about his recipients, he says, to those who are the called, or those who are called, we are called. This is part of our identity. And depending on your particular theology, you may hold to the doctrine of predestination, which is this idea that God chose from the beginning all who would be saved. And we don't have time, like it's not, it wouldn't be right for me to try to handle that today, right now. It's too difficult to get into all of that. But regardless of what you believe about that doctrine, the point that we should take away from being called by God is that it's the grace of God and the grace of God alone that that draws us out of the depths of the darkness of our sin and into his marvelous light. You did not save yourself. You're not so smart that you figured out your own need for a savior apart from the work of God in your heart and life. And if you're having a hard time pointing to the grace of God in your life, I want to give a couple of examples. It may have been like me through your parents and grandparents who prayed for you and took you to church. That is the grace of God in your life. And maybe it was through someone sharing the gospel with you in conversation or maybe they shared a gospel tract or some kind of literature. That was the grace of God in your life. Maybe it was through someone sharing the God, oh, excuse me. Maybe it was through some media source where a faithful believer actually shared the, the truth and, of the gospel, proclaimed the good news of Jesus, and that resonated with you and you believed. That was the grace of God in your life. Maybe it was through you just deciding, I should read the Bible or I should read books about Jesus, and you did that on your own, and still that desire that you had to read the Bible was the grace of God in your life. I love what the British pastor John Stott says about his own faith. He says, my faith is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. And let that be. Let, that, let us speak that truth over ourselves regularly. If you believe the gospel, it's because Jesus pursued you and he called you by his grace. Do not be proud of your belief in a way that makes you look down on other people. Rather than looking down on them, look at them with compassion. Pray for them. Share the gospel with them. Pray for their salvation. And when we're tempted to believe that we're better than non-believers, we've got to remind ourselves again and again that we've been called by God to faith in him. And he is still chasing people. He is still calling people to faith. Maybe you right now in this room are being called by Jesus into faith in him. Maybe you've been chased by him for years and you can't seem to slip him. Maybe his call to you feels distant or muffled. 
And if that's true, we pray together, Father, let your Holy Spirit be heard loud and clear to all who are gathered here. Remind us of your great love for us. And that's, so we are bought and we are called, but we are also loved. We are the beloved of God. Um, John 3.16 is a verse that is familiar to many, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In verse 17 that follows, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God loves us so dang much. There, there are not words to actually describe how much God loves us. And it's not like a little bit, and it's not just out of obligation. Uh, sometimes we have to tell our kids to say, I love you. Like, Jenna will be leaving for work or whatever. I'm like, kids, say, say I love you, mommy. Or she'll do that to me. Say, I love you, daddy. And they're like, in the middle of something else, love you, dad. Like, they're playing with Legos or whatever. Uh, it's just this distracted thing. And it doesn't feel in that moment like love. But it's different when you walk in the door and they jump up and run across the room yelling, daddy's home, mommy's home. And they like, give you a big hug and say, I love you. Like, that feels totally different. A, that is a, that's love without obligation. And that love, if you have felt that before, is we, it's not even a match worth of flame compared to the sun that is God's love for us. He loves us so much more than we can understand. He loves us because that's who he is. In 1 John 4, 16, John tells us that God is love. He loves us because he is abounding in faithful love. And we need to be firm on that as believers, that God loves us. But we don't want to go too far in, in, in error in the way that we say, God doesn't care about what I do. He doesn't really care about how I live. I can, I can do what I want because God's going to love me anyway. That is, that is wrong thinking. It is an error for us to go to that place. The, the Apostle Paul wrote letters where he reminded people of that, not to take advantage of God's grace. And Jude, as we continue through this book, that's one of the reasons Jude is writing. If you look down at verse 4, he talks about people who have come in and, and corrupted God's grace. We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks, but we don't want to, to err in that, that same way. As believers in Christ, we are the recipients of God's full love. And no one and no thing can take that away from us. No sin can remove God's love from you. If you believe the gospel of Jesus, you are, you are the beloved of God the Father. And he didn't just love us by sending Jesus to die on the cross 2,000 years ago, but he's still working today because we are kept. We are kept for Jesus. If you're a believer, God has saved you and is still saving you, meaning that he's going to see your salvation through to the end. Jesus didn't ascend to heaven and then or after his resurrection and go, whew, I'm glad that's over with, and then just sit around waiting until the end of time. If we look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, talking about Jesus, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. You know, we could sit and wonder at the beauty of that verse for a long, long time. Jesus is able to save every single part of us, even the stubborn parts that won't seem to die and hide in the corners of our, our lives. And he's always living to go between us and God. He's always saying, my blood paid for that sin, and that sin, and that sin, and that sin, and so on until we meet him face to face. When you are saved, you are saved, period. There is no removal or loss of your salvation. As Paul says in Romans 8, 
Verses 38 and 39, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is security. That is kept. And now there are some, maybe you've known some, who've professed faith in Christ and then fallen away and rejected him. And we can argue about whether or not those people were really saved in the first place. Or we can follow Paul's advice when he tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Not that we should be scared that we don't really believe. But that we should take our faith seriously and every day regularly, I should say, regularly examine our hearts asking if we believe that Jesus is Lord. And y'all, I have to repent daily about things that I have said and done. I do not act like someone who, who believes that Jesus is Lord every moment of my life. And if you don't believe me that I'm saying that to you, just ask Jenna or ask my kids or ask the staff about things that I've said when I've gotten worked up. Like, I, I am in need of regular reminders of God's great love for me so that I will turn my eyes away from myself and to him. Believer in Christ, you are bought, you are called, you are loved, and you are kept Do not let yourself forget that. What you believe about yourself matters greatly. It affects everything in our lives. I've said that, excuse me, already. And I want to point out some some ways that we err. Because Jude is writing to this group of people who he's trying to remind them of who they are so that they will not be led astray by people in their church who've come in and have, have this corrupted living They're setting a bad example for them, and he's saying, I don't want you to be led astray. And this happens to us in subtle ways, where in our relationships, if our identity is not in Christ and our identity is in our relationships, then, or or in our spouse, I should say, then like getting a spouse or keeping that relationship stable with our spouse, like just becomes all consuming for us. We get irritable or angry or just lost when things aren't going the way we want them to in our married relationships. Or if your identity is in kids, so then they misbehave and you take it personally and try to punish them into obedience rather than remembering that they are image bearers in need of help from God to become his beloved. Or they, your kids grow up and they don't, they don't spend as much time with you as you want them to. They don't act in the ways you want them to act. And then you take that personally as if it's an attack on your identity. You forget that your identity comes from Christ and Christ alone. Or it happens with our politics where our identity will get tangled with a particular party. And then we act like everything is lost if the other side wins or gains ground in a certain area because we've forgotten that Jesus is king. And he has bought us with his blood so that we can serve him and love others in all areas of our lives. It happens with our bodies. The health and fitness community promises us a better life through stronger, healthier, more attractive bodies. So you're wrecked when you can't drop that weight or when you can't dodge the diagnosis. Happens with with money, with our wealth, where our identity gets wrapped up in having enough to be comfortable when we retire so that we forget that the God who loves us owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he'll provide for you sometimes in humbling ways by having you ask someone else for help 
or, or maybe your identity is wrapped up in wealth to where it's just, I don't think this happens so much in obvious and clear ways, but sometimes we do get wrapped up. I think we just, we, the idea of enough, what the line where we draw enough, when you start out and you don't have a lot of money, enough is really low. And then once you have amount of money, you realize, oh no, I still don't have enough. I need to make this much more and this much more. And it just keeps, it's like the fish that grows to the size of the fish tank. Uh, our desire for money just increases and increases and increases, and we forget that that's not meant to be where our, our identity is anyway. And if you want to fight against that, if you have more money than you need, then I encourage you to practice giving it away. It is good for your heart and soul to give the money that God has given you away to other people. It will help you move your identity from your wealth and your comfort and your stability to, to Jesus himself. But whatever else we are, we are first and foremost children of the one true God, bought, called, loved, and kept for Jesus Christ. And again, if you don't yet believe in Jesus as the Son of God who conquered sin and death so that you could have forgiveness and life in his name, then we urge you to believe that today. Enter once and for all into the family of God forever. Experience that blessing from God today and always. And remember... Believers in Christ belong to God forever, and he wants us to continually experience that blessing. So that's who we are. I want to talk a little bit about how we're blessed. Because it's a blessing to just belong to God. And he doesn't want us to just experience that once and then just wait until the end. He continually pours that blessing out on us, and we've been blessed, and we are being blessed. We've been blessed with his mercy uh, mercy is not getting what you deserve. So the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death and that our sin rebellion makes us enemies with God. And right from the beginning, if you read through the Bible, right, right in the beginning pages, God had the right to end it all. He had the right to wipe it out and start all over again, but he didn't. He showed mercy because he is merciful. And in his mercy, he made a way for broken people to be brought into right relationship with him through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And if you believe that, you've been reconciled to God or brought back into relationship with him, into union with him, just like he intended from the beginning. That is mercy. And his mercy has been poured out on us. And Jude says, as he talks about, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, saying, God's mercy, we want it to be multiplied to us throughout our lives um, and then pour out of us onto other people. So uh, I'm a dad, as you are aware, and as a dad, I practice the ancient art of dad in tickling my children. That's like one of my favorite things to do is tickle kids. I, if, you don't, if you have never tickled a child before, I'm sorry, it is wonderful. Um, and when I tickle them, they, of course, are trying to get me to stop. And they'll be like, stop, 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 no, no, no. Uh, but from my brother, my brother had kids before I did. And when he would tickle his kids, he taught them to say, some people have their kids say uncle, some people say mercy. And he taught his kids to say mercy. And when they would cry mercy, he would say, mercy always wins. And I was like, that's weird. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, man, that's a cool way for me to just demonstrate, pra practice mercy to my kids not just for them to learn something, but also for me to recognize that there's a time to stop. Tickling is fun unless you're being tickled. <laughs> you're laughing, but you don't feel happy. <laughs> you just want it to stop. So when they cry mercy, 
And then I say, mercy always wins, and I stop. I'm I'm, it's in a small, silly way, I am practicing mercy. And I don't always do that well. Because sometimes they'll say mercy, and I'll go, sorry, what? Percy? And I'll just keep tickling them. And they're like, no, mercy. And I'm like, what? What's Gersey? No, mercy. They're like, I don't always show mercy when I should. So that, again, that's a silly example. But then I also don't always act like someone who's been given great mercy. Because when my kids are disobeying, and I know they're disobeying, and I can hear it from the, from the other side of the house, or I see it from across the room, and they don't know I'm watching, rather than intervening and trying to teach them a better way, Sometimes I'll sit there because I'm, I'm agitated for whatever reason and I'm justifying my own sin as their father where I'll sit there and just wait on them to cross a line far enough that they've earned themselves a consequence. I'm not showing mercy in that moment. I'm literally taking pleasure in their, in their disobedience that then gives me permission to give them punishment or consequence. That's not, that's not me acting like somebody who, who's received mercy. And like... Kids need consequences and kids need discipline. But I think if you've, if you've practiced that, you know as a parent there's times when you cross the line. That you weren't just correcting behavior. You were, you were taking your own frustration out on them. And that in those moments, we're, we're not living like mercy is being multiplied to us and then overflowing to other people. Um, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. It was a guy who owed a ton of money to someone, and he begged for forgiveness, begged for mercy. And that person forgave that entire debt. And then that man turns around, goes into town, and he finds somebody who owes him a much smaller amount of money and throws that guy in jail when he can't pay. And we don't want to live like that. We want to be known as forgiving and merciful servants of Jesus. So we've been blessed with God's mercy. We've also been blessed with peace. And when we take an honest look around, life is not peaceful. And if it is peaceful for you right this moment, then like enjoy that because it's not going to be for very long. When we experience peace, it's often in short windows and then something else happens, another disruption or another disaster that sends us spinning. And this isn't the life that God created us for. The reason we desire peace is because it's programmed into us. We all want peace with one another and with God, even if we don't recognize that that's what we want. Like when, when John Lennon wrote, all we need is love, like that's, that's his soul crying out that he wants to be at peace with others and at peace with God, even though he rejected him. And, and we don't want, sometimes I think we, we take that concept of all we need is love or can't we all just get along and we try to like gloss over the problems and that's not peace. God doesn't want us to just ignore the things that are wrong. That's a negative kind of peace where we're just subtracting the places where we disagree. True peace is an invading and active peace. We used to be enemies of God. There was enmity between us and him. But now there's peace because of Jesus. That peace came with a cost. The evil and sin that enslaved us couldn't be defeated by us, but God, through the work of Jesus, he defeated those captors, and peace was brought where peace was not, so that we can now walk through hardship knowing that we are loved by God, like, like David in Psalm 23 when he says, yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's not because the evil isn't there. 
It's not because the brokenness isn't there. It's because God is with him. So we can walk through, as, as Pastor Mike led us uh, to contemplate the ways that we get frustrated at others. And we, want, we want things to be made right, and we can't always handle it. And we need to, to rest in God's sovereignty and trust him in those times. We can look around at the injustices around us. We can lament them. We can do our part to correct them. But we also can say, God, this is yours. You are with us in this pain. You are with us in the disruption. You are with us in this brokenness. And so we can have peace because we trust you and you are here. And then we've been blessed with love. And we've already talked about God's love, so I don't want to rehash all of that. But I do want to say that I don't think, I don't think we will ever understand fully how much God loves us. Even in eternity, I don't know that we will fully understand it. And the reason I say that is because of Ephesians 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, in eternity, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We're going to be learning about God's love and grace for us forever. We're not going to wake up in heaven and automatically know everything there is to know. I think we will continue to learn and grow and understand his, his grace and his love for us more and more fully over time. And hopefully, if you've been following Jesus for a while, that's true of you in this life. Hopefully, you are more in awe of the love that God has for you right now than you were when you first understood it and first believed it. That's the, the blueprint for the Christian life. That's why our, the, the mission statement the pastor rolled out last year, that we would grow together in knowledge, love, and obedience to God for his glory. That is a, that's a true statement. That's, that's our desire for you if you've been following Jesus for 15 minutes or for 55 years, that you would grow together with other believers and you would be growing in knowledge, love, and obedience to God for his glory. We want to be continually growing in our understanding of his mercy, peace, and love for us so that it would be multiplied to us and then pour out of us. Because as, as we understand it more, we're going to see God as more and more beautiful. We're going to see ourselves as more and more in need of his mercy. And then that's just going to start trickling out of us. We'll find ourselves when we're parenting out in our frustration. We'll find it, we'll, we'll make it, it'll be easier for us to show mercy to our kids. It'll be easier for us to be gracious to our coworkers or to our neighbor who has annoyed us for the entire time we've lived next door to them. It'll be easier for us to do what God's called us to do. It'll be easier, easier for us to open up our mouths and share the gospel with people because it's so wonderful to us that, like Jeremiah, it's like a fire in our bones that can't be shut up and it's just exploding out of us. That, that's the desire that we have for our lives in following Jesus, that we would become merciful, peaceful, and loving people the kind of people that others want to be around, and then through those improved relationships, we'll invite more and more people into the kingdom of God so that they can experience these blessings and then share them with others. Just like Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, we are blessed to be a blessing. And one day, we will share in those fully. We will see the blessing of God more fully than we ever can in this life because we will be face-to-face -face with him his mercy, his love, his peace. We will, 
it won't just be something that we have to cling to while the things are going wrong in our lives, while our friends and family die, while we struggle with cancer diagnoses, while, while we're rejected by people and our relationships break or we lose jobs and we can't make ends meet. It's not just going to be something that we have to cling to to give us peace in the midst of all that brokenness, but it's going to be something that we fully realize and get to live in with others forever. Man, what a day that is going to be. Let's invite as many people as we can into that joy. Believers in Christ belong to God forever. And he wants us to continually experience that blessing. So again, Jude is writing to an audience that he's encouraging to contend for the faith in verse 3. And that's important, and we're going to talk about that in the, in the weeks ahead. But sometimes as we, as we think about contending for the faith, we get caught up in the, the like battle language and we start beating up on people who step out of line with their beliefs or with their actions. And I was having this conversation with Pastor Mike this week, and he's a better Baptist than I am because he can alliterate really well. Um, and we were talking about contending for the faith, and he said, we've got to learn to contend for the faith without being contentious. And I was like, man, that's so good. You should be preaching instead of me. Um, but understanding who we are as bought servants of Jesus, those who are called, loved, and kept by God, and then how we're continually blessed by God with mercy, peace, and love. Understanding that means that as we contend for the faith, we're going to do that out of an overflow of these things, an overflow of mercy for those who get caught up in lies and are led astray, overflow of peace, so that we don't come to church looking for ways we disagree, so that we can call out our Sunday school teacher who, who, made, uh, who misspoke or whatever. And then an overflow of love for others so that when we do confront them, we're doing that from a place of compassion and not from just a desire to be right. It's important that we understand who we are and how we've been blessed so that we can rightly contend for the faith without being contentious. So I'm going to pray in a moment, um, and then the band's going to come up. They're going to lead us in, in song. You are welcome to sing along with them. Um, but you also, if you've got things on your mind that the Lord has brought your attention to that you need to, you need to wrestle with, and I encourage you to take the time to wrestle with them. You can sit, you can stand, however you need to do that. Um, but I want to encourage you either, to, either now or later today to ask God what the things are that you're putting your identity in that aren't him and help, ask him to help you put them in their proper place so that you can contend rightly for the faith in your own life and in the lives of other believers in this church. So let's pray. Father God, we, we love you. We thank you for these words from Jude these words from your word. And God, we ask that you would help us to be people who understand who we are in Christ so that our identity is so firmly rooted in that that we can quickly and easily reject it when some other identity tempts us to, to place um, too much attention in it. And so that when we see error in our, uh, in our brothers and sisters, we can confront them with compassion and not just come at them trying to prove our own rightness or our superiority. God, help us to know you more today. Help us to share you with others.
as we go through this week. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.